I interview Christopher Brown of the project known as Random Touch. Specifically, we talk about two releases that we have in the studio that were sent to us by the artist some many years ago, one in 2007, one in 2008. A true conductor wears a man and a box and a word. And we pick up with the interview where I tell Christopher how much these pieces have meant to me over the years. These two releases have been in the collection for ever since 2007 and uh, have been a, one of my prized uh, pieces to play and, and uh, that's why I decided to interview you. I am, uh, I am honored. That's wonderful. It's, uh, it's great. I have not marketed since 2012, so Every time we occasionally get played in London and Moscow radio stations, and we occasionally sell some stuff. Every year, I guess we sell some stuff, not a lot, but so it's just wonderful to hear that somebody's still listening. I, uh, Jim Day, the co-founder of the band, died a year and a half ago, and so mm. the band is definitely over, and so it's nice to to see uh, we have some legs here. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was uh, it was very sad. I had uh, I had hoped that we would have a chance to uh, play live again, but it wasn't to be. think of our experimental questioning um, these are unusual I, questions that... yes well um, it just uh, wasn't a direction uh, that people had taken before and um, it clearly is you know reflects your uh, 
arena that includes experimental and sound and noise music that, uh, if you can call it that, um, that um, wasn't a part of uh, what was going on. You know, we we started off mostly playing college radio stations was, was our big success early on, but then that's a four-year thing. You know, somebody starts into college and four years later they're gone. And then we sort of fell off the map with radio and we ended up mostly being embraced by the prog rock arena, which is a little bit of a stretch in my view, but it was, you know, we had a publicist that was good in that area and we were getting reviews and so we went with it. You know, you just kind of have to surf as time goes by with wherever it appears people are most interested. And um, it just wasn't very much um, appreciated that, you know, we never, I haven't played a song since 1979. We were pure improvisation, no discussion of key, no discussion of beat, no discussion of mood, no words whatsoever. We would just get in the studio, turn on the recording, and off we'd go. Or we'd be playing live, same thing, off we'd go, never played anything. Uh, one guy from Bosch, I, was, I did one album with uh, a band I co-founded, Bosch, and um, one of the guys there, uh, Charles Green, liked to say, we never play the same song twice. But anyway, that was never really of interest to people. It was never really examined. And yet, you know, despite decades of jazz, you know, intermission um, improvisation and the Grateful Dead having sort of a improv sort of live uh, thing that would go on in the middle of songs, I don't think there was anybody that was, certainly when we were, marketing at first in 1998 I don't think there was anyone that was putting out stuff that was pure undiscussed unplanned improvisation music and so I don't know the questions just didn't even come up even though I put it into the publicity material that this was pure improvisation so who knows but to answer you had a question um, when did I first run across experimental music? And this was a very interesting question for me because I had to kind of sort out what is my view of what is experimental music. And um, and I am recognizing it's probably very idiosyncratic because that's how I am with most things. And without a doubt, it goes back to age 13, 1968. Early in that year, I went to see a the 2001 A Space Odyssey by Kubrick. And when I heard Atmospheres by Georgi Ligeti, I was just blown. It just blew me away. It was unprecedented. It was just, it was almost 20 years old as a piece of music, but for me, it was completely new and completely experimental. And, wow. um, and I know Jim Day went out literally the next day and bought the album. He was a year older than me. He would have been 14 then. He went out and bought the album the next day and, you know, got onto the path of becoming a, a keyboardist and learning composition and, you know, really going down the, uh, the classical music direction with all of that. Wow. And then later that same year, and I had the same feeling about it, I um, bought the album Electric Ladyland, where my experience was that Jimi Hendrix 
went into this studio that he, you know, had very little experience as an engineer and just proceeded to play and experiment in every way that he could and produce this album that to me was just filled with experimental stuff. Now everything he did might have been done by somebody else 10, 20 years earlier, but my view of experimentation is that it's someone going to an area that's at the boundary of what they understand to be known music. And they begin experimenting at that boundary and then they expand the boundary of music. Harry Parch has made his bizarre world part of music. Jimi Hendrix in the studio, of course, plenty of people after him have gone and done even wilder things in the studio. And obviously Leggetti wrote lots of pieces that were like atmospheres and probably wrote some of them before atmospheres. I don't know his history well enough to say. I know a lot of his works were never released because the Soviet Bureau of Appropriate Compositions wouldn't let things out. I just heard a cello concerto by him the other day on Sirius, and it was not allowed to be performed during his lifetime. It was only after the fall of the Soviet Union that it was let out. Mm. But anyway, my view um, for the experimentation that Random Touch did was that we went in two directions that were for us at least. Again, I'm not saying someone else didn't do it first somewhere else, but we started doing some music and we incorporated it into our traditional instruments too, where we were playing with non-traditional instruments. We would literally go to places that were making plastic cast for making dice, for making signs, all kinds of things. And out in back, they would have all the scrap metals. We would just scrounge up everything from one inch by eight inches to 10 inches by 20 inches, just all kinds of scrap metal of all different sizes and, and densities. And then we would just grab stuff from our house, a balloon, a vacuum cleaner hose, um, you know, a pan from the kitchen, and other just strange stuff. And we would pile into the car. This was when our kids were very young and going to bed early. And after the kids went to bed, once a week, we were living in the same town at this time, we would jump in my car and we'd just go off to the middle of nowhere and do what we started calling road noise, which was just this experimentation with items that weren't intended for making music, but which we would use to make music. And then the second thing, of course, I already mentioned was the experimentation of actually having totally unplanned music pure improvisation, no discussion, no intention to do this or do that, make it short, make it long, make it fast, make it slow. None of that was into it. So those two areas were where we experienced experimentation, for us at least. But then what happens is once you're doing this for a while, it becomes for you no longer experimentation. I mean, you can then continue to experiment. You can move as we did. Um, the guitarist for Random Touch owned a barn and he had all these antique implements, you know, a giant 14 foot diameter um, watering trough for cows that he had indoor inside the thing. And, um, you know, old weird plow stuff and just a bunch of rusted metal, different things. And so for us, when we started doing our once a week, once a week we would do traditional instruments in my studio 
and then once a week we'd go to Scott's barn and we would do those instruments or those objects. And so that was experimentation to move out of our little comfort zone of scrap metal and little things you could get into the front seat of a car to suddenly being working with a 14-foot item. So yeah, what happens, I think, is, you know, whether you're Ligeti or Harry Parch or whoever you are or can or Eisenstein Neuerbotten, you start off experimenting and then you become comfortable with it. You've expanded the boundary of music past where it was and now that's no longer experimenting. You're doing what you did three months ago, 15 months ago. But then you might expand it a little bit here. You find some new things, some new bigger toy to do road noise with. Um, or you um, decide to do a few recordings under the influence of psilocybin mushrooms. There's a different sort of direction of experimentation where you're impro improvising, but unlike previously, you're now doing it with a mild dose of psilocybin in your system. So my view is experimentation is, is a first-time event, and maybe it extends into a second and third, but the pure, the pure experimentation fades as you become comfortable and the new boundary of music is now bigger than it was before you entered the room. And then you can still expand from there, but you have so much love of doing what you're doing. For us, pure improvisation and using instruments sometimes that are not intended to be as instruments, that just becomes our home. And in a sense, it seems experimental to somebody else and it might, you know, it might remain experimental in the eyes of many, but for a practitioner like myself, it really becomes mostly not experimental. It becomes mostly unique, but really what I'm used to. I've been playing, I put my 10,000 hours in <laughs> making, making this kind of music. I can't really call it experimental now, but it's a relative term. Somebody stumbling on, you know, all sorts of different bands, whether it's Ligeti or whether it's Can or if it's Random Touch, stumbling on it five years from now and their world was who knows what, folk music, blues music, jazz music, classical music, and suddenly they're hearing something they haven't heard before. Well, for them, they're exploring an experimental music. And it was at one time. Again, it's like, are you familiar with Harry Parch? Not offhand, no. Well, he was he was just a strange guy that decided to divide the scale instead of 12 notes into 43 notes. And he built dozens of instruments in order to accomplish this. And each instrument was basically a, a wonderful piece of sculpture. And he used all kinds of things. And then he wrote music for this for decades and decades. Um, way outside the middle of the road classical music, but today all of his instruments are at the University of Illinois in Champaign. Huh. There are still groups that are performing this, and it's a big production, moving these giant heavy instruments around and teaching people. Well, I think people are always, I think people, if you want to learn how to play parch instruments, you must decide to go to school at University of Illinois at Champaign. And that's about it. For a while they were in uh, Madison, at the University of Wisconsin. But anyway, you can imagine someone taking the scale and deciding 43 notes or better and building uh -huh. instruments, since no instrument could have played that, was clearly experimental. 
But yeah. I would say that Harry Parks, you know, at the end of his life, he lived a long life, in, well into his 80s, and he was still teaching people how to perform Delusions of the Fury and, and other pieces. It was no longer experimental for him. He was experimenting in his early years, but then he found his niche. And, um, you know, as a person that listens to Parch, probably at least once a year, I would say that, you know, he expanded the boundary of what is music to me. And now he is no longer experimental to me. He certainly was the first few times I heard him. And um, then he just became, you know, part of the the constellations in the sky of great composers that I enjoy listening to. Well, one of the other differentials on this on these subjects we're discussing, uh, and I, as I look on the Wikipedia article for Harry Parch, he distinguished his music uh, from abstract music, which reminds me of uh, music concrete and uh, the idea where you know, you make a, a, a chunk of, usually it's a recording, you know, and most of the time yes. it's a recording, where it's just permanently, that's the music, and not, it's written down and could be uh, replayed or, or re-expressed re, uh, the same way with these instruments that are called for and so forth, and that's abstract. And, and But he doesn't, he doesn't, well, this article, what I've read so far, doesn't say that he was part of Concrete, but... It's the same idea, and and that sort of leads me to the other thing uh, that that I thought when you're saying this, it sort of ties into the other two questions, doesn't it? Uh, how you know whether experiment was a success? Maybe you know that when it ceases to be the experiment and becomes this other thing that then you do. Maybe I I, I would have to agree with that. I hadn't even thought of that aspect because you know what, all the experiments that I've done. It didn't work out. I didn't return to, uh-huh. right? I mean, first of all, I do appreciate that. I um, I'm now very active in um, what could be called experimental photography, mm-hmm. and with my photography and with my music, and I would apply this to all the great composers from Brahms and Beethoven and Tchaikovsky to Bartok and and Stravinsky. Eighty percent of what I do and what I did as a musician is mediocre. The, 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 the grace of whatever it is that descends on 10 to 20% of what I've done is wonderful in my view. But most of it, it's not bad. I enjoy making the music. I never had a bad day um, of recording with uh, Scott Hamill and, and Jim Day. We always enjoyed ourselves no matter what, but then when I go to listen to it afterwards, some days, of course, are better days, and and I'm batting, you know, 70% is good. But on average, 80% is not worth multiple listens. That's just the way it is. It was fun to make. We enjoyed it in the moment, but it has to rise to a higher standard. When you're making it, you're really losing yourself to it and, and some wonderful things are going on even if the outcome is not is not really good if it's just mediocre it's just not worth listening to multiple times and so i don't put it on an album and that's 80 percent it's the same for my photography now 80 percent of what i produce just gets tossed 
Well, I guess that depends yeah. on where you put your focus then is whether it's on creating the, uh, conducting the experiment and uh, the results of it on the recording. Uh, you, you could put your focus in either place and perhaps, or in both places and say, you know, this was this experiment running in tandem with this experiment is what we did to find out what we found out and then the results of the experiment as, as recorded in the recording of the experiment, what, what you were left with might be a different matter like you may succeed in the one area and not in the other and not yeah. want to listen to it again you know but you still learn something and and that's that's what the essence of it and i imagine everyone's their answers will all overlap in that way is so what we're trying to do is is learn right um how, how right make, right but i have a, I, I, my standard for learning is that i only want to learn through play i ah. don't want to learn through hard work ever and that's the nature of, of all this art making because even the things that are failures, so to speak, and again, I'm, I'm saying they're mediocre, they're not bad. They're not failure failures. They're just not the level that I would want to listen to it 10 times over the next 10 years. Right. But some of it is, I think about 20% of it is. And so, you know, in a sense, it's it's you're you're always experimenting. You're jumping off a cliff with improvisation. You know, who knows what's going to happen? But what happens so often is is the best outcome happens. Literally, somebody makes a mistake by every measure of what they were intending or doing. They they literally make a mistake, but then they play up the mistake, and it becomes a new theme, and it it ends up being absolutely brilliant. And working fantastically. I, I have to tell you, the, my, my whole approach to making music and art is alchemy. I, I think it all depends on understanding alchemy, which is something I came to understand through maybe a dozen LSD trips from 71 to 76. And alchemy is a matter of recognizing the world as all polarities, day, night, masculine, feminine, up, down, everything is polarity. And the secret of alchemy is to straddle polarities, is to have one foot in opposite poles of a polarity. And so the most simple one that I've used for um, all the music I've ever done is intent and openness. So we all, and when you have three people, then you've got like way more intent than you can have with one person. You have the intention of creating strong music music that is emotionally moving and so you just have this intention and then you have no connection to how it's going to happen you have complete openness the opposite of intent openness you don't care how it's going to come out or how it's going to get to where you've intended to get to you just don't know don't care and whatever comes along whether it's a surprise bunch of harmonies by Jim, or whether it's this glissando thing that Scott's doing on his guitar, or whether I literally drop my sticks and they make some cool sound that I then decide to make into a theme. It all succeeds when the intent, an intent from the heart, and a true openness are straddled. That's when the best outcomes happen.
And I can tell you, our very best work, without exception, would not be recorded. Whenever we had over-the-top experiences, halfway through, three-quarters through, or all the way through, the recording mechanism would stop. I was my own engineer, so I would set things up, trust that it's going to keep going. And in the early days, you know, speed of hard drives and capacity of hard drives were all an issue. I was using Pro Tools. Mm -hmm. No, I'm so familiar with this. This is so familiar to me, but go on. Tell me. Well, that's really all I have to say is that our very best stuff we call up, there's one for the gods. It was too good for human ears. Uh, I had, well, it's it's a little more hippie, but I was at a, a... drum circle one time at a festival and this I said I wish I could have recorded this because there were like 50 people playing at once and I never take part in that usually and so I, I wished I could have kicked myself and he says well you can't record spirit drumming <laughs> <laughs> the tape player would melt you know <laughs> like it, it comes from the other direction you know the reason you weren't recording is because that couldn't have been recorded <laughs> Right, right. No, I absolutely believe that. It wasn't the equipment. It was the the intention comes from the other direction. But, you know, who knows? I mean, I I don't really personally believe that. It's a nice thought. Sometimes I think that. But but see, that's where it takes us. And the alchemy, I was thinking biology, too, you know, like DNA. When there's an aberration or something, that a mistake in the coding, sometimes it's a real mistake and there are problems. But other times, I think that's where the nucleus of the cell came from. Uh, right, a, right, right. Well, all, all, you know, all things we have were originally mutations, right? I mean, if you go all the way back to the amoeba, yeah, every so everything that we have is 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 a mutation that ended up being the rare non-mistake that they usually are. Well, so then, if that was the first experiment, if there was a holy first experiment, then uh, that's already been done. It's no longer an experiment, right? So nothing else is an experiment either because we're just repeating that first experiment. Well, there is that there is that absolute mentality that there is nothing new mm-hmm. to be done. Everything's been done there. You know, my view is that humans resembling us have been around at least a million years. There's been multiple civilizations, many of them much greater than what we have today. And sure enough, I don't doubt that everything that I've discovered in complete naivete was old hat, you know, 150,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't matter. You know, I'm I'm discovering it now. It's got the excitement of discovery. Um, you know, but I, I do kind of have that, that thought that there, there's nothing new under the sun. Everybody's, you know everybody's doing something that someone previously did and that's part of the cycle because by recycling and 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 recycling I'm talking about you know empires rising and falling I'm talking about earth changes literally burying um civilizations that might be 150,000 years old by recycling you get a clean slate and everybody gets to once again rediscover and feel like they're the first to to find this thing Ah, that's interesting then. So then it's still an experiment because it's an experiment for you. Yes, exactly exactly right. You're going down the same path, but it's the first time you're going down that path. That's a sort of a metaphor for our existence as individuals. Isn't it? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. And 
The other alchemy thing that I like is the straddling of the polarity creation discovery. Because mm. I can tell you that in the best cases, the best music I've made, I don't recognize as my own. I literally oh, yeah. don't recognize as my own. I always you know have this to feeling. listen to the recording because I'm like, what did we do? What did we do? <laughs> you know, what, what did we just do? I have to hear that. And I'll listen to it and think, I'm listening for certain things that I know happened. And it's so funny when I can't find them or, <laughs> you know, or, and also conversely when there's, I don't remember that at all. What, what, how did that, where did that come from? I, I, I had two levels of trance. I always got to the first one, but now I was to the second one. The first level is my eyes are usually closed. I'm playing and I'm no longer conscious of what I'm playing. I just hear the whole and it's like, a big train is roaring past me, and I have my hands up, and I'm somehow supporting its passage of the whole thing. And I don't literally know what I am doing. Am I hitting the cowbell? Am I hitting the snare? Am I doing vocals? I don't know. But then, and this probably has only happened, I don't know, maybe three dozen times in my life, this next level of trance, I enter a play. It's almost as if I've gone into dream time. I'm in a play. I know my part. I know everyone else's part. And we're all doing it. And in performing this play, we are creating this music. I'm so divorced from playing drums or doing vocals. I am I'm at just so some other level. And I'm really a conduit um, for this electricity to go through. And I, I don't even feel responsible. And literally after the fact, I feel like I've discovered this piece, not created it at all. I don't, I don't feel I can take personal responsibility for creating it because I don't remember anything, <laughs> literally. Mm. Right. That's something you said reminded me of the inner picture on a true conductor. If you, uh, do you recall what was printed there? Uh, on the left-hand side, I think it was um, all of us plus the video guy, Matt Eben. Um, we were sitting down in the barn. Yes. Yes. As you were telling me this, it reminded me of this picture, as if you were having one of those moments. <laughs> be created for the photo, I'm sure. Right, right. Well, I had I had that feeling in mind. I, I think I had both yeah. my hands up and my eyes closed, and it's it's literally... You know, we didn't have any organized, let's all do this kind of thing, but that's just kind of where I went. Everybody went wherever they wanted to go, and it somehow had a cohesive feel. Right. I would like to address the sound music issue, because I do have yeah. strong thoughts on it. Uh, again, probably idiosyncratic, but um, I love the sound, and... The beginning of anything that may turn out to be music begins with a sound. And as soon as you have a sound, the question is, well, it isn't a question. You feel about that sound in some way. That sound elicits a feeling. But then the next question is, how? Well, how did that sound get made? What, what is behind that sound? And then the big question is, what comes next? Because it's in the what's comes next, and it might take two more next. It might take three sounds. I don't know how many sounds it takes, but at some point, 
it becomes music. If it's if it's any good, you of course can have just deliberately nonsense sounds that are disconnected to anything. But if the sounds evolve and elicit a human emotional reaction, then you have music. That's that's what I can say about that. So you're you're saying you you would have a, a wider definition of what encompasses music then um a wider encompassing of music well i mean yeah. like less strict like a strict definition would be you know something like italian mathematics you know it's the the notation how it's written um the very specific sort of definition of what is music as opposed to just birds in the trees or the sound of a car engine so it's you know it that there was a whole music concrete definition was the abstract you have to have a system to abstract to you know and and then that system is very finite and specific and everyone uses it to a degree i mean of course like you say with uh arch and uh maybe think of others and then in the east where you have microtones even the notes are different or there might be more or less you know I mean, the talking about alchemy and also in with religion you you see that with holy books that all overlap but then you know the catholics have the apocrypha and then it's all part of the same corpus of material but you know it, oh, essentially there's going to be one road that everybody uses fortissimo forte quarter notes a staff the bass clef the treble clef i mean it's going to become the main thing as the strictest definition of what the music is and but like i say with that understanding that there's going to be other people that are going to have a different or more notes or a different staff but most of the time especially since we're in the west we're going to see it a certain way um but uh, but at the end of the day if if it elicits human emotions right if see that's what you I mean. respond to it then that's really the all encompassing definition that 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 gets beyond the temporary habits, you know, like baroque music and classical music. You know, this okay. this is this is something that addresses whatever experimental thing though. I I would then say that experimental things that don't achieve the eliciting of human emotional responses does not achieve music. But on the other hand, no matter how bizarre or how strangely sourced and antithetical to all that's classical music or pop music something is if it does have that effect no matter how experimental it is it goes beyond sound and becomes music that's just again my idiosyncratic point of view on that right right but this probably with these questions <laughs> by their nature there's no real right or wrong answer and there's of course. just all the nature of words i mean <laughs> I always say when we did research methods in college the one of the things that stuck with me was the idea that you had to have operational definitions stated before you even read the guy's paper. You know, there's you have to tell you what all his meanings for these words are so that when you read the paper written with those words, you'll know what he really means and there won't be any doubt, you know, uh and so you but there's a time in the day to communicate that way, you know, with people and then of course with your wider definition of music someone else might 
put that pail somewhere differently than you would perhaps and maybe it would move them but wouldn't move you and then you've got these different uh impressions of what is music you know it's music for them it's music for them but not for this person and and there's been no no overarching uh objective way of seeing what is and isn't music you know of course it isn't the words themselves are inadequate right and that's why i asked the questions the way i did because i i knew it would elicit all of this and exactly too deep into a rabbit hole but but we want to we want to look down into it a little bit because that's 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 also part of the experimental process with the music and then you know do i call it experimental music or do i say experimental sound and music you know and these are all the questions that i even had to even start to do this which is why a lot of people would just go ahead and make a pop song like you know cuz it's easier <laughs> that way <laughs> you don't have to deal with all these things you know and then of course a lot of people don't and they just go in and they just make their sound like a, one of our projects the guy said we're looking to listen to the old recordings he says you know we weren't really doing noise there we were doing crowd rock <laughs> you know? and it's like like well you know that's true but and then you got other people that would say it's all garbage because it's not what they expect to hear i i take my hat off to to big successful pop musicians that are actually complex talented people mm -hmm. i mean you know the stuff kd lang and ben mink did on ingenue um much of what the beatles did i mean i'm absolutely impressed and it's so far beyond me i cannot write for the masses I cannot do that. It isn't. I make music for me. Mm -hmm. And I just hope that I'm not the only person with this weird configured antenna and that other people have antenna like this and they'll enjoy it as much as I do. That that's literally that's literally all I can do because I am incapable of writing something that, you know, 50% of the world's going to like. I'm just not capable of it. I'm not I'm not built that way. I'm built this way. <laughs> that's all, well, that's, you know, you got to be who you are. That's the irony of it then too. It, uh, this is necessarily, and as the, my show is titled, an esoteric pursuit to some degree. And there's irony in all of and everywhere you turn with it because <laughs> as esoteric as it is, it's part of the general creative process. So every artist will employ experimenting in some way I mean especially if we at the risk of overusing the word but you know they it's part of the process so like you say with the Beatles even some of the most popular popular music uh, pop music you could have and of course they they played things backwards they they had to first feedback I mean weird these, harmonies yeah, they did a lot of strange stuff that they incorporated and you, you even invoked Jimi Hendrix and you know this Sometimes it's just your stance that's experimental or the way you're going to play the guitar. It's not yes. the playing of guitar, it's, it's how you're going to play it. So, it, you know, that's the thing that I, why I find looking at it through the lens of this is an experiment is so fascinating to me because that's actually part of it. That's the whole reason is to, if you're not, if it's not an experiment, then you are just, you, you know, you're doing uh, regurgitation. Yeah, you're filling in the blanks, like with the words that are supposed to be there. You're you're painting by the numbers, you know, and and right. that might that might produce a great picture, but of course it's all part of a larger effort, and, and it shouldn't be discounted either because I like my some of my of my pop songs, you know, 
uh, that I listen to, and, and there's stuff I listen to that my friends can't stand at all, you know. And but it's just that there's room for all of it, you know. And, and there is. Uh, so. Uh, yeah, I'll just get spin off and all kinds of things. I'm really trying to control myself because you got my wheels turning. And I knew this would happen. <laughs> well, I let me quickly just tell one more question that you had asked me that I um, haven't responded. And it's based partly on the entire genesis of the name Random Touch. Mm-hmm. Jim and I, in maybe 75, I want to say, 76, he had an eight-track quad system in his car. It was unbelievable, high-end amp, high-end everything. It was a beautiful system, and we started listening repeatedly to Morton Subotnik's Touch, P-O-U-C-H. And it is an entirely synthesized quadraphonic piece that blew our minds and led us to using the word touch and random touch because of this mutual favorite piece of music by Morton Subotnik. But more importantly, we went out and bought two quadraphonic reel-to-reels. This is, you know, 75, 76. I'm not sure when we bought them. But that was the real beginning of intense experimentation, what you could do with two quadraphonic reel-to-reels in terms of layering, in terms of doing an improvisation with um, non-traditional instruments, and then play it back, and play with it for a whole nother level of non-traditional instrument play and improvisation. And that was truly where the formation of Random Touch came from. We started doing that. We said, hey, you know, we played it, uh, we've done weird music before at uh, colleges. Let's let's start sending cassettes out. And let's start uh, touring, um, you know, colleges of Wisconsin and Illinois. And it was all went back to the quadraphonic experience of Morton Subotnik's touch. Hmm. I was looking that up because that, that's the other reason I thought this would be a great idea to interview folks with, uh, who do experiments. It would be some of these uh, names you would drop, Parch and then Morton Subotnik, and I found quite a few items on YouTube about him. I, Subotnik I was very active um, Maybe he still is active. He's an old man now. Here we go. Touch. And uh, it's still available. Two people are selling it on Discogs. Excellent. Uh, I think it's vinyl only, though. I listened to it. Oh, I've never had the vinyl. I I only had the CD. Jim had the 8-track, which was the unique quadraphonic version. Mine's a stereo version, a CD. But I just listened to it back in August. I, you know, it's one of the things I probably listen to every year. I probably listen to my whole year is filled up with listening to the stuff I love about once a year, and I, you know, have such a huge amount that it it keeps me happy all the time. There's always something I haven't heard in at least a year that I love. There it is. There you go. <laughs> Well, hey, it's it's been great talking to you. You've given me a lot to think about and listen to, and uh, I think that uh, if if I'm any indication, the listeners might find this just as interesting as I did. So I really appreciate you adding to. Well, the- excellent, and thank you for for you know going into this direction and experimenting with your uh, your new broadcast. It's wonderful. I really enjoyed uh, 
Really enjoyed talking with you, Ted. Well, and if you ever think of anything else you'd like to say along these lines, we'd be glad to have you back down the line. Circle on back to me. I right. um, I, I I love to talk almost as much as I like to make music. So, well, I know one thing, one thing I definitely wanted to do was to circle back to everyone and next time uh, talk about a specific release, perhaps, and then dive in that way. Oh, so, that would that would be lovely. I'd love that. I will do that. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Christopher. I, I All righty. Really, really appreciated talking to you. This, this turned out way better than I could have hoped. I'm so glad to hear that, and I certainly enjoyed it as much as I could have enjoyed it. It's been fun, fun talking with you. Ooh.
and it rattled the old man to the little boy. Don't tell me that I am in your age. 